Taken together, the second and third movements are Mahler's most fascinating symphonic representations of nature. They come close to descriptive, even cinematic, tone painting. In the third movement, Mahler is especially creative in his use of musical topos to replicate animal sounds, such as cuckoo calls, a nightingale's song, and the braying of a donkey. Birdsong had already become an integral part of Mahler's earlier symphonies and songs. Yet he does not merely romanticize his subject here, nor does he portray the animals as gentle creatures engaged in idyllic frolic. There is a gruff, brutish side to their nature that is represented in passages both raucous and rough-hewn, though still innocent of malicious intent. Constantine Floros sees parody and sarcasm here, as if, he says, all of nature were making faces and sticking out its tongue. An undercurrent of nervous agitation in the animal's interplay infuses the music with disquieting animation that mirrors the vigorous stirrings of the second movement's B section. When the woodland creatures tire of their frolicking and roughhousing, they settle down to an afternoon nap to the strains of a hunting horn, heard from a distance, far enough away not to appear threatening. Use of the antiquated post-horn for these passages is an unusual touch. It evokes not only a far-off call to the hunt, but implies a nostalgic yearning for the past, idealized as more natural and earthy than the present. Placing the post-horn offstage to affect a sense of distance is another example of Mahler's utilization of acoustical space to achieve his dramatic intentions. He already used this technique in the finale of the Second Symphony's Call in the Wilderness and Der Grosse Appell and the Wedding Festival from Part Three of Des Klagenelied. What is also unusual is the character of the posthorn passage itself. While it begins with typical triplet tattoos, they are not played with the stentorian assertiveness expected from hunting calls. Rather, they are sounded softly and tenderly, like a pastoral lullaby. Three episodes focus on the posthorn. Its soothing melody lulls us into a nostalgic dream world, like the serenity of an open meadow bathed in sunlight. The posthorn joins two French horns in a captivating trio. A burst of trumpet tattoos interrupts, shaking us out of our reveries and bestirring the music that follows with frisky animation. After the close of the third episode, the animals become more agitated, as if instinctively they sense the approach of the antagonist. For emerging out of a whirlwind of harp arpeggios that lead into an orchestral outburst comes man, the hunter. The music here creates the image of a huge being who steps into the midst of the forest and looks about in search of prey. One sight of this enormous creature and the little animals scatter, at first uncertainly and then with increasing speed as if they run for their lives. When in full gallop, the movement ends. While the movement that follows represents man, the next stage in the development of life, here he is depicted as nature's foe, a flashback to the life-negating forces of the first movement. Although mankind is certainly in advance over the animals, his pervasive brutality is a reversion to anti-life characteristics. This disturbing anomaly is subtly reflected in the dualism of woe and lust engaged in Nietzsche's text used in the fourth movement. Some commentators suggest 
that the chilling orchestral outburst toward the close of the movement represents not man, but the great god Pan, featured in the first movement. Here he comes to survey his domain. Mahler made reference to both interpretations in his various comments on the movement. It is not surprising that both the second and third movements have strong connections with the world of the Wunderhorn songs, which take a naturalistic approach to wildlife while often parodying the animal's naivete. While in the second movement that relationship is mostly implicit, in the third it is explicit, for its main theme is virtually lifted from that of the song Ablösung im Sommer, Relief in Summer, one of the Wunderhorn songs. This allegorical song tells of the death of a cuckoo and its replacement by a nightingale as the source of a summer evening's entertainment. The somewhat irreverently ironic feeling of sorrow for the cuckoo's demise that characterizes the song's vocal line has no place in the animal's movement. Therefore, Mahler does not quote that part of the song in this movement, but simplifies it and thereby better adapts it to the nature and form of a symphonic movement. The thematic material of the A section is composed principally of four motives. First, an upward fifth replicating the cuckoo's call that then falls by a fourth. The second is a cheery phrase consisting of two eighth-note couplets separated by a hint of the devil's dance motive in a dactylic figure with its long note trilled. Third, a rhythmic figure that contains a leap of an octave followed by a falling fourth, imitating the whistling song of a nightingale that derives from the Ablusung im Sommer melody. And fourth, a soothing sequence of eighth-note couplets that hint at the motive of childlike innocence. These motives are the raw material from which Mahler fashions most of the movement's principal melodies. A long sequence of sixteenth-note figuration bears a resemblance to the scherzo movement of the second symphony, but the atmosphere there was much more sinister and scathingly paradistic. Both of these scherzos also refer to other movements within their respective symphonies. The scherzo of the second, looking ahead to its finale, the scherzo of the third, momentarily recalling the dark terrors of the first movement. Beginning with a two-bar introduction, a light, bouncy rhythm played in pizzicato strings, the third movement starts with the music from the Ablusung song. The various motivic phrases referred to earlier, as well as others, that served as background for the vocal line in the song are now raised to prominence as the section's principal thematic material. They are developed in endless variations using their respective components in a fascinating assortment of harmonic and rhythmic reconfigurations.
Here is the opening of Ablusen im Sommer for comparison. Zu Tode gefallen, Tode gefallen, an einer grünen Weide, eine Weide, eine Weide. Kuckuck ist tot, Kuckuck ist tot, hat sich zu Tod gefallen. The mood is generally relaxed and lighthearted, but shades of minor tonalities create a slight sense of apprehension. A second theme, actually a variant of the fourth motif referred to earlier, is softly played by the oboe as the key shifts to C major. Immediately after the introduction of the second theme, the clarinet offers a variation of the oboe theme. Decorative string figures imitate the nightingale's song. Soon the minor tonality returns as the oboe again sings its lilting tune, now more plaintive than before. The 16th note string figuration that first ushered in the oboe theme is transferred to woodwinds as the music becomes more demonstrative on a striding bass rhythm. The donkey's guffaw-like braying rudely intrudes. It consists of a two-note figure that leaps down by a super octave played here by violins. Quickly it gives way to pompous triplets scattered around the orchestra that lead into the next segment. The 2-4 meter that dominated the movement to this point is replaced by 6-8, but without a change in tempo. C major returns for the final episode of the A section. In heavily accented tones, the strings boisterously pronounce a rather gruff variation of the 16th note string figuration that accompanied the oboe theme, now introduced by a falling figure on three eighth notes that goes against the grain. Mahler delights in parodying his rugged, rough-hewn forest animals with music criticized in his day as vulgar and crude. After a brief trumpet call intrudes, hinting that the hunter man may not be far off, a skipping triplet rhythm and flute trills lighten the mood in a more easygoing variation of this episode's thematic variant. Each succeeding variation of this melodic material is built upon the preceding one, in a brilliantly conceived and creatively structured development. A bassoon passage lifted from the Lob des Hohenverstandes song as a variant of the donkey's braying motive leads to the B section. Flutes reprise the song theme to begin the B section over delicate 16th note figuration in violins. Then flutes and oboes play a C minor variation of the song theme that seems to anticipate a possible disturbance.
Few have noticed that Mahler reconfigures the fourth motive referred to earlier into a familiar motivic figure from Wagner's Ring Cycle that represents a mythical denizen of the forest, the dragon. Its presence is hinted here softly in trombones and tuba under the clarinet's continuation of the song theme. Suddenly, as if reacting to a sense of impending danger, the animals become frightened. Did they see the dragon lurking in the distance? They cry out for help, using as a warning signal a falling variant of the second motive and its grace-noted companion figures, against which chromatics that intrude into the song theme sound ominous. A nightingale flutters about in great agitation with high intervallic leaps on its trill-like motive, Finally, the terror-stricken animals scamper away on a terrifying chromatic descent in staccato brass, bassoons, and low strings. Again, Mahler telescopes into the beginning of a new episode, ending the rapid descent with an upbeat to the next segment on violins. The clarinet's reprise of the song theme in a more relaxed C major soon calms down the frightened animals. A new lyrical melody in the flute, sung over the song theme in the clarinet, soon turns into a melancholy plaint when the piccolo follows with a minor key variant. Lagrange suggests that this might have symbolized for Mahler the naivete and helplessness of the animals. This new melody that will return in a different guise in the Angels movement begins on a flute and is immediately varied by piccolo, trumpet, and clarinets in sequence. In this new form, the melody is recognizable as a quote from the Wunderhorn song Das Irdische Leben. It is as if Mahler were making a passing remark that the sorrows of earthly life are not just visited upon humankind. The animals try to overcome their melancholy as the song continues lightly and tenderly in a reduced orchestra. Then the boisterous donkey kicks up its heels, trying to add some merriment to the scene, despite the continuation of descending chromatics in the nightingale's song in woodwinds and a minor key variation of the main theme in strings over the walking bass figure heard earlier. Flighty triplets interject a note of mirth as the mood continues to lighten seeking the carefree spirit that prevailed earlier in the A section. A trumpet tattoo pierces the air, warning of the presence of the animal's antagonist, the hunter-man.
This sudden warning squelches what might have been a return to the happy, playful atmosphere of the opening section, and the music becomes subdued and moody on an F minor version of the song theme, played by flutes over the flighty 16th note figuration heard earlier, now played more meekly by a solo violin. But the trumpet tattoos continue in the background, an ever-present warning that becomes increasingly prominent as the song theme breaks up into fragments. Soon the post-horn emerges from the background. Once again the mood changes, now giving the impression of a calm summer afternoon. Mahler originally entitled this section Der Postelon. The trio, or C section, is now at hand, one of the most unusual episodes in all of Mahler's music. Over sustained F major triads in the violins, in a metrical pulse of 6-8, the post-horn enters softly from a distance. It overlaps with the trumpet's sustained C, creating a sound world light years away from the forest scene. Mahler occasionally uses sustained tones to imbue a musical setting with a dreamlike quality or otherworldly peace. Out of an agglomeration of military signals and tattoos played softly, Mahler fashions music of sheer lyrical beauty that would charm the most savage beast. The hero, represented by these military flourishes, reveals his gentler side, just as the animals had shown their roughness. At this idyllic moment, one might expect an oboe or English horn to carry the melody, but Mahler's use of a post-horn is a brilliant touch. As member of the brass family, it is better suited to a hunting call than a woodwind instrument, but also able to produce a warmer, rounder tone than a trumpet, and sounds more diminutive than a French horn. This taming of the music of the hunt adds an element of irony. The motive of the hero, representing man, the hunter, is portrayed here not as threatening, but friendly, sounding more like a lullaby to soothe the animal's fear than a call to the hunt that would frighten them. It is yet another example of Mahler's brilliant use of melodic motivic transformation. One could consider this musical metamorphosis as a response to the animal's arrogant mockery of the dead hunter in the funeral procession of the von Schwind wood woodcut that was the inspiration behind the third movement of the first symphony. For a substantial stretch, the free-floating post-horn solo continues until it ends on dotted rhythms that sound like alpine yodels.
flutes enter furtively on a variant of the post-horn theme that has the charm and childlike innocence of a nursery rhyme. The variant soon turns sour when its tonality touches the minor mode, as if the animals are not yet convinced that they are out of danger. But with the return of the major key, the animal's untroubled confidence is restored, and they resume their light-hearted gamble. Soon a sobering tune leads to a brief reprise of the post-horn interlude, in which its cantilena is refashioned into a well-known Spanish jota, quoted by Glinka in his Hota Aragonese, and by Liszt in his so-called Romanian Rhapsody. Mahler plays it in the same slow, easy tempo as the post-horn's principal theme, and not in the faster tempo in which the Spanish dance is usually played, an example of thematic transformation sourced outside the symphony. Here is the Hota as Glinka used it in his Caprice Hota Aragonese. In only a few measures, the post horn is joined by a pair of horns playing their own version of the post horn's tune. These three join in an exquisite trio that is so captivating that it takes one's breath away. Once again, this shortened version of the post-horn music closes with soft alpine yodels, ending on a ringing high A, suspended briefly before the next episode begins. Cautiously, the animals again begin to frolic about as the abluzung music undergoes further development, first in the minor mode, but after a few bars back in the major. Just as the animals seem content to continue their playful bantering, the post-horn returns, picking up right where it left off on the same note on which it ended its previous solo. The animals stop to listen, transfixed by the post-horn's gentle tones. As before, a pair of horns join with the post-horn, playing essentially the same music as in the earlier trio, but now with a more active counter-theme in the post-horn. Soon the tempo slackens and the music softens, as if bidding good night to the sleepy animals. The post horn softly plays a yodel figure, while the two French horns tenderly sound their hunting calls. Suddenly a loud, rapid trumpet fanfare shatters the sleepy stillness, and the animals awaken abruptly. 
Although the A section returns here in its original key, it is not with the scherzo material of the song theme, but with the flutes playing a syncopated rhythm that seems to portray the animals hastily fleeing the scene. Instinctively, they sense the approach of a hunter. A sense of mystery beclouds the atmosphere on soft violin tremolos that sound eerier than usual by being played on the bridge. A piccolo softly plays the mournful Erdischeleben melody before the subsidiary theme of the scherzo returns in woodwinds and horns. Somehow the animals recover quickly from their fear of the hunter's imminent presence and merrily frolic about, seemingly unconcerned about their safety, to various motives of the ablusum theme. Even the dragon motive seems playful here. Soon the dragon is transformed, as if by magic, to the motive from whence it was derived, the horns announcing its reappearance arrogantly while the violins play the nightingale motive against the walking bass rhythm in low strings. Soon a rising fragment of the Vecruf theme that opened the symphony again threatens danger. The animal's gamble becomes more unruly, and the nightingale's twittering music becomes more agitated, as if an argument was in progress. A flurry of descending chromatic sixteenths in the brass bring back the B section, as if in a huff. The section is marked by Mahler, grobe, rough or coarse. The B section's reprise begins with the horn's gruff treatment of the fourth motive, against trumpet's mimicry of the triplet figure from the B section's thematic variants, all to the raucous accompaniment of equally loud 16th note figuration, played by bassoons and low strings, soon joined by the rest of the orchestra. Trills ring out mockingly as playful triplets hurtle about in brass and strings, alternating with fragments of the nightingale's fluttering rhythms. All these convoluted scraps of music are combined in a cacophony of rowdiness, This entire segment seems to be composed of nothing but a wild interplay of countervailing rhythmic figures without melodic material of any kind, thus relating it to the dour first subject of the opening movement. Just such a passage caused Mahler's critics to cringe. Is that the herald from the first movement, whose repeating grace-noted tones become increasingly pronounced in horns and trumpets? Finally, a forceful trumpet fanfare intrudes, putting an end to the animal's roughhouse. We still hear scattered cries from the cuckoo and nightingale, played rapidly and out of tempo, as if they take no notice of the trumpet's warning, and continue on with their frolicking. 
As we hear the last cuckoo call, the post horn sounds again in the distance, calling the playful creatures to cast their ears in the direction of its spellbinding song. As if listening, notes Mahler, the animals settle down for the last time to hear what will be a shortened version of the post horn serenade. This time, the posthorn's rapturous song creates a feeling of nostalgic longing. Violins recall the soft strains of the Spanish jota that now seems lost in a dream world of wistful remembrances. What is not so apparent is that the jota melody strays from its course momentarily, and we hear the violins anticipate the soft strains of the finale. Soon the violin's melody begins to fade. The two French horns that accompanied the post horn earlier return for their final trio in melting thirds. The horns close with the phrase with which they bid the animals good night at the end of their previous trio. Suddenly the music begins to stir from its restful slumbers as the A section makes its last appearance quietly but apprehensively. The animals awake from their restful slumber and begin to race about wildly as repeated cuckoo calls and nightingale fluttering indicate mounting tension. A long harp glissando whirls up like an enormous gust of wind, as it had done twice during the first movement. It sweeps across the landscape with a huge outburst in E-flat minor that reminds us of the terrifying moment in the first movement when the anti-life forces suddenly burst on the scene to disperse the life-affirming music of the Pan March. One might imagine the sudden appearance of a gigantic figure cloaked in black. With a gust of wind, its cloak is whisked aside to reveal a monstrous image, perhaps that of man, the hunter, or the mythical god Pan. Horns and trombones transform the bird call motive heard at the beginning of the movement into a variant of the terror motive from the first movement by stretching its first interval to an octave and elongating its rhythm. Mahler clearly intended to evoke the deep shadows of part one. 
he described this passage as a relapse into the deeply animal form of the all, Pan, before the huge leap into the spirit, to that higher earthly creature, man. As the hunter surveys the scene ominously, looking for prey, the string tremolos that accompanied the terrifying orchestral outburst quiet down. A two-note summons, repeated throughout the brass, carefully and quietly warns the animals of impending danger. They begin to stir, first on triplets and timpani, then on repeated fragments from the animals' various motives. Realizing the imminent threat to their very lives, the animals flee in a wild frenzy of galloping rhythms that become increasingly rapid. Even Mahler's favorite march beat, repeating couplets of falling fourths, is played here in double time. Mahler creates a sense of increasing motion not by speeding up the tempo, but by a sequence of increasingly rapid rhythms that merge into a long, frantic trill that parallels the sequence of increasingly faster segments in the second movement's B section. A sharp orchestral stroke cuts off the trill and ends the movement. 